Hi, my name is Christine Murray, Editor-in-Chief of The Developer, and welcome to The Developer Podcast, where we talk about how to make cities worth living in, which has as much to do with the spaces between the buildings as the buildings themselves. So often the very people who suffer from discrimination are expected to volunteer extra time to provide free consultancy or join action groups to tackle the problem. That's a subject Dr. Leslie Kern, author of The Feminist City, addressed in her talk at Festival of Place Gender Equal Cities. And with our next festival coming up on 12th of October in real life in London, tickets on sale now, I hope this talk will inspire you to meet up with our amazing community at that event. This podcast is supported by IE University School of Architecture and Design, and we have a brief message from the Dean, Martha Thorne, so stay with us, and then you'll hear from Dr. Leslie Kern. So Martha, tell me about IE School of Architecture Design and why you're keen to partner with a developer. Christine, I think our school and the developer have lots of synergies. I would say, um, first and foremost, the idea of creating sustainable and equitable environments is, is something that we both are very interested in. Our love for the city, the ability to learn from the city and from many places to learn from each other. And then finally, I'd say that you're very entrepreneurial. Um, the developer has an entrepreneurial mindset that's very close to everything we do at IE, even at IE School of Architecture and Design. The ability to see opportunities where other, sees, other people see challenges, I think, is what brings us together. And we have this, of course, in our Global Master in Real Estate Development Program, this entrepreneurial spirit, this holistic look at the city. So it's great to be aligned uh, at IE School of Architecture and Design with the developer. And I really hope that all your listeners will visit us, will learn more about our programs, and especially the Global Master, the part-time program in real estate at IE School of Architecture and Design. It's my great pleasure to introduce our closing keynote uh, speaker for Festival of Place Gender Equal Cities. Um, Dr. Leslie Kern is an author and academic. She wrote a book called The Feminist City. She is Associate Professor of Geography and Environment and Women and Gender Studies and Director of Women and Gender Studies at Mount Allison University and holds a PhD in Women's Studies from York University. Leslie, great to have you here. Thank you. I'm really happy to join you today. So Leslie's going to be speaking about representation. It's something we've just talked about uh, with all these groups, you know, many of them active in promoting or enabling or assisting with representation. And I'm really looking forward to your talk. Great. Well, first of all, thank you to Christine and everyone at The Developer. Uh, writing Feminist City has given me the opportunity to meet and learn from so many amazing people and organizations that honestly I didn't know existed before I started uh, being part of these conversations. So I'm so grateful that Christine has uh, been one of the people opening doors for me and others to have such uh, generative conversations. In almost every media interview and Q&A session that I've done around Feminist City, I'm asked about representation. Is lack of representation part of the problem? Will better representation fix these problems? How do we achieve wider representation? How do we go beyond representation? And how can representation be approached intersectionally? I found myself talking about representation both as a personnel problem, like who is in the room or the boardroom or the planning participation session, but also as a public space problem. Who do we see on monuments, pedestals, street signs, and so on? Today, I'm going to explore both of those issues by looking at what I'll tongue-in-cheek call the uh, four horsemen or women or non-binary riders of representation failure. The first two relate primarily to issues of professional representation and community participation processes. Well, the second two are more connected to questions of symbolic representation in public space. I'm going to try to illustrate these with several examples that draw on things that have been very top of mind here in Canada over the last few weeks, particularly with respect to Indigenous issues, but I think they'll still be very clear to our international 
audience today. And I'm not afraid to say that over in the UK, um, you could always use more rep reminders of the ongoing effects of colonization in the places that your uh, empires once touched down. The four things that I'll talk about are tokenism, exploitation, symbolism as a substitute for change, and symbolism as a form of displacement. I'll touch on each of these in turn and conclude with a few ways of thinking about representation that might encourage us to do representation better. The concept of tokenism will be familiar to everyone, I'm sure. This is perhaps the most superficial level of representation. It happens when people are hired or consulted primarily to fill in for a lack of diversity across identities such as uh, gender, race, sexuality, or ability. Now, this is not to imply that those who are hired and consulted aren't qualified. In fact, they're usually overqualified, but the institution's interest in them is predicated on their identity rather than their skills. Now, I'm not arguing against affirmative action or hiring equity policies or even quotas per se, although it's worth noting that uh, data from the last several decades has shown that it is primarily white women who have benefited from these policies. Um, but I, I'm pointing out that change at this level is limited, if not followed by more comprehensive systemic alterations to the ways things are done. And I realize I just said followed. I'm not sure actually that followed is the way to go. Maybe those comprehensive systemic changes need to be happening first or at least at the same time as more diverse hiring. So maybe I'll just pose a question to the audience. Have you ever felt tokenized or seen this happen in your school, your workplace, other institutions that you've been involved with? So when tokenism happens in the realm of city building, for example, people are brought in as workers or participants in planning processes in order to represent whatever underrepresented group or groups that those in power think they belong to and can speak for. This places a tremendous burden on a few people's shoulders. They're expected to speak for whole communities or demographics as if those are homogeneous. Institutions might feel they've kind of ticked the diversity box once this happens, whether they actually listen to those voices or not. This was parodied on the comedy series 30 Rock. I don't know how many people watch that, where one of the writers of the fictional variety show on that program was nicknamed Two Four uh, because he's both black and gay. So they got Two Four in their diversity. Now, in the real world, tokenism can quickly backfire. A, a, a local example here in Canada is efforts to uh, improve the representation of Indigenous people in Canada's university sector. So there's been kind of a wave of hiring of Indigenous faculty, uh, staff, and so on into Canadian universities, but without real support and without addressing systemic racism, ongoing colonization, or being willing to change the basic function, form, processes, and identities of universities at a more fundamental level. So in the last couple of years, many high-profile scholars and administrators have resigned uh, quite publicly from these positions, citing a hostile environment where clearly their universities believed that token diversity was going to be enough. So ultimately, without changes in terms of who is in power or how partnership with diverse community representatives will be achieved, tokenism will fail as a representation strategy. Now, tokenism in hiring or participation easily morphs into exploitation. What I'm referring to here is the expectation that women, people of color, or those from other minority groups will do the diversity work of the institution or planning process, for example, on top of the job that they were actually hired to do. So this work might include drafting equity policies for the organization, training other staff on diversity and gender issues, participating in all hiring processes, recruiting diverse participants, speaking for their communities, mentoring other underrepresented folks, sitting on endless committees and task forces, hello, yes, <laughs> and all of this without extra compensation and no acknowledgement of the emotional toll that that kind of work 
uh, takes. This is why even well-meaning ideas like having, say, women architects in a firm mentor other women architects can end up being unsustainable and problematic because what's happening is that all of the labor associated with change is being loaded onto those who are already disadvantaged. And guess who isn't doing that work, right? The, the, the let's face it, white men, the, the, the people who are already in power, who have the most privilege, are not being asked to give up the time that they're devoting to their research, their projects, their designs, their outreach, their writing, whatever it might be, well, those other folks are taking huge amounts of time away from the job that they were hired to do to fulfill this um, diversity mandate that an institution has put forward. It, it, I'll give you a little example from my world in the university, women and, and queer professors, for example, we often observe that we always have a box of tissue, a box of Kleenex, prominently displayed on the visitor side of our desks, i.e. where students would come into our offices. And our male colleagues express surprise that students cry in front of us and they say, oh, that, that never happens in, in my office. And the rest of us are sitting there going, yeah, we know students don't come and share these things with you. They don't come and ask for mentorship. They don't come and ask for that emotional support. They don't come and, and you know, disclose sexual harassment and sexual assault to you, but they're they're coming to our offices and doing that. Uh, but there's nowhere on my you know, annual activity report that I get to put in how many crying students I, you know, sat with and, and listened to their stories over the course of a year, right? So what adds insult to this this injury that I can see from the chat, people are are sort of really um resonating with, is that a great deal of this diversity work that people are breaking their backs to do goes nowhere. In um, scholar Sarah Ahmed's book about this, which is called On Being Included, Ahmed interviews diversity workers in universities and, and other institutions who frequently describe their work as running into a brick wall over and over again. Ahmed argues that the brick wall is actually a feature and not a bug of this work. In other words, institutions want to show that these processes are happening, that reports are being written, that policies are being developed, so on and so forth, but they don't actually really want that fundamental deep level of change. So that brick wall remains in place. Uh, the workers are creating the appearance that there's a commitment to change, but <clears throat> at a, a more systemic or structural level, things are not being altered very much. So I'm going to shift here to talking a little bit more explicitly about urban space and issues of representation in the environment itself. The first one I'll touch on is what I'm calling symbolism as a substitute for change. This refers to cases where a symbolic action or change in a symbolic element, like the name of something, for example, comes to stand in for deeper levels of change. So here, representational shifts are used to disguise or distract from the fact that little meaningful action is happening, and sometimes ongoing harm is happening, but it's even more hidden behind the scenes of a veneer of symbolic change. So let me give you another example from here in Canada. You, you may have seen in the news about a week and a half ago that in the town of Kamloops, British Columbia, the uh, the use of ground-penetrating radar discovered the remains of about 215 children who were uh, forced to attend what we call Indian residential schools, or what were called Indian residential schools. And uh, the, the discovery of the remains of this, these children is another reminder of the, the horrors of that residential school system where across the country, thousands of children died while supposedly in the care of both religious and state institutions that were designed to strip away indigenous culture and 
essentially uh, assimilate Indigenous people into quote-unquote Canadian uh, society. So in in the wake of this horrifying discovery, there were very quickly calls on social media and so on for flags across the country to be lowered to half-mast. This is clearly a symbolic gesture, right? We lower a flag in mourning or in recognition of of, uh, a, a tragedy. There's also increased movements to remove the statues of people like our first prime minister, John A. MacDonald, who was very much an architect of uh, genocide of Indigenous people, and a man named Edgerton Ryerson, who uh, was kind of the architect of the residential school system and for whom uh, one of Canada's biggest universities, Ryerson University, is uh, named after. So there's been calls to both remove symbols of these men and others like them, as well as their names from things. And I can't help but uh, share with you this image just from a couple of days ago where a protest in Toronto toppled this statue of Edgerton Ryerson. His head was detached from the statue, and this was kind of shared all over social media as like a, you know, a, a victory. Now, it, it is a victory. I support these moves wholeheartedly but they can sometimes be pointed to by those in power as evidence that somehow real change is happening that disguises inaction or ongoing harm. So for example, the federal government, while lowering the flags on our parliament buildings to half-mast, continues to fight residential school survivors in court over the compensation that has been recommended for the uh, abuse that they suffered. So these symbolic gestures can sometimes hide the fact that um, very real ongoing harm is happening. Now, uh, another example that I'll give, uh, perhaps a somewhat more cheerful example, in many places, including Canada and the United States, the month of June is Pride Month, and you're going to know about it if you go out in public space, because there are going to be rainbows everywhere, rainbow flags, rainbow signs, rainbow logos, a total rainbowification of, uh, of, of urban space. This is great to see. I, I can't argue against this. But critics have labeled this rainbow capitalism in recognition of the fact that for many businesses, for example, big banks and corporations who are kind of rainbowifying their imagery during the month of June, This represents a marketing opportunity and not really a social justice commitment. And we can see this in the fact that there are still many companies across Canada and the U.S. where discrimination against LGBTQ uh, plus people continues. Um, These corporations may, you know, donate money to political causes that are opposed to LGBTQ plus rights and so on. So it, again, is this kind of veneer of change that can hide the fact that actually there might be very little interest in more substantive change. Of course, people have fought long and hard for these symbolic acts of recognition, affirmation, responsibility, grief, and so on. And I don't want to return to a time when we don't make those efforts, but the challenge is holding governments, corporations, schools, and other institutions accountable. They have to put their money where their mouths are, as we say. Otherwise, it's just pinkwashing, right, in the case of rainbow capitalism, or maybe greenwashing with a, you know, an environmental veneer over products and corporations, or some other kind of wash uh, that puts the right outward image on a place or a product while attempting to wash away past or present sins. So maybe people can think of other examples that that they've seen in public space where you you see a kind of symbolic change either in some the the name of a place or a street or the statues that are raised or not raised in a public square and you know you might think about what is going on behind that that symbolic change. All right. Coming to my fourth example here. Symbolism as a form of displacement. So in my day job as a university professor, I'm also a gentrification scholar, which incidentally is the topic of my next book. And as a gentrification scholar, I see examples where symbolism is perhaps even more problematic, where symbolism becomes itself a form of displacement. 
in this case, symbolic representation in the urban landscape replaces the actual presence of communities who are displaced by processes like gentrification. So, for example, in Harlem, a beautiful statue of Harriet Tubman rises above trendy brunch spots filled with white hipsters. Colorful murals of Black women along 125th Street adorn a square opposite trendy retailers like American Apparel. Meanwhile, longtime Black residents and retailers are struggling to make ends meet as rents skyrocket and gentrification pressure increases all over the neighborhood. The entire culture of the neighborhood is shifting as certain norms of sociality uh, shift in favor of more, well, white middle-class norms, for example. Um, In Pilsen, Chicago, which is a historically Mexican and Latinx community, there are symbols of um, Hispanic culture everywhere in the physical landscape. There are giant murals that reference um, Mexican history outside of the U.S. as well as inside the U.S. There are the the, the maintenance hole covers in the street, um, you know, as you walk along and then those round, you know, what we called manholes or now maintenance hole covers, they are adorned with like an Aztec inspired pattern. Uh, Spanish words and Latin American iconography are all around in the neighborhood. But what those symbols are perhaps hiding is that Pilsen has been losing um, Hispanic and Latinx residents at a rapid rate while the white share of the population increases as gentrification is really um, gripping or, or has been gripping Pilsen in its claws now for, for quite some time. But if you just walk down the street, you would be like, oh, this is such a cool Mexican Latinx neighborhood. What you wouldn't know is that many of the people who made it into that kind of a neighborhood can no longer afford to live there or to run their businesses there. So I guess what I'm getting at here is that sometimes quote unquote, good representation is actually part and parcel of injustice that's happening. It's a a little bit depressing, to be honest, and uh, challenging to think about what we can do about it. But let me move on to offering a few thoughts on what we might uh, do differently. So in the workplace, for example, as well as in planning and development processes, how can we approach questions of representation maybe in a slightly Um, more productive way. As I mentioned, when speaking about tokenism, we really need to counter those by putting in place real change in institutions and processes themselves. It's challenging because it's a bit of a chicken and egg question. You know, do you bring in a more diverse set of workers, participants, and so on into the process and then hope or try to make sure that that leads to change in the institution? Or do you try to change the institution first and then recruit those people? I mean, I think it has to be a little bit of both. But essentially, you can't really expect to hire and retain and promote and support, for example, more women if your maternity leave policy is terrible, right? If there's no flexibility in work-life balance, if there are no safeguards on women losing out on promotions, commissions, and so on after taking a leave. You also need things like really good, clear anti-harassment guidelines and guidelines on workplace relationships. You can't kind of wait until things go horribly wrong to think about these issues. So ideally, then once you change in institutional culture and policies at a deeper level, you are actually able to really attract and retain a diverse range of workers for their talents, for their skills, rather than uh, simply based on their identity. In terms of public space itself, one thing that I've been thinking about because you know, questions about, well, should we keep this statue or that statue? Can we have this person, you know, can we have a public square named after this person or not? There, because the built environment is so durable and many things in it last for decades, if not centuries, we are perhaps really concerned about getting it right. But to some extent, this is impossible. We don't know what a hundred years from now people will say 
about the, the people who we might put up statues to today or the movements that we recognize, right? We can't possibly know that. So I think in some ways we have to be willing to embrace a kind of temporariness, a kind of contingency, recognizing that stories about who we are as nations, cities, communities, and so on change. And there's going to be no perfect monument, no perfect story People and history are complicated. And of course, multiple stories kind of collide. So I think there has to be a sense that we are willing to, to try to avoid master narratives, right? We, we have master narratives everywhere in the built environment. And it, it's not that those of us, for example, who identify as feminists want to come along and say, well, let's create, you know, the feminist master narrative of the city. Because inevitably, we're going to get some of that wrong. And some people will be excluded from that. And decades from now, people will look on it and say, hmm, that was a really partial story, or that was quite problematic, or they weren't thinking about these particular kinds of issues. So, you know, I'm not lucky enough to be in the role of having the power of a city builder. But I guess what I would say to those who are is, you know, can we think of the urban environment in in less of a sense of, you know, everything is so durable and has to last forever and maybe take a more playful approach, you know, invite different groups to kind of take over spaces, have things that are designed to last for a couple of years at a time, you know, have multiple stories kind of coming together in the same sorts of places in ways that would be really educational. And of course, we, we have to recognize that those symbolic changes can only be one part of the puzzle. They won't really be markers of true change in cities unless we're also fighting gentrification, advocating for changes to policing, working on decolonization, and so on. We also have to be thinking about changes to the physical environment like accessibility, spaces for caregiving, play, uh, better sense of safety for different groups, transit accessibility, mobility, housing, and so on, or those symbolic changes are hmm, not so great. So again, here in Canada, some of the events of the last few weeks, which are really just, you know, public moments of events of the last several centuries, right, uh, have, have prompted new efforts to do things like changing street names, removing statues, diversify monuments in public space. But people are having these conversations about, okay, but what are you going to do after that, right? What's going to be the deeper level of change? So in the examples that I've been talking about today around Indigenous history, cities in British Columbia, for example, are talking about, yes, symbolic change, but also we need to have plans for mandatory staff training on local Indigenous history, opportunities for Indigenous contractors and employers in, in infrastructure projects, um, members of First Nations communities being included on things like climate change policies, safety policies, transit policies, and committees in the city, and of course, um, compensating people for their, their time and labor. So, you know, we might say, well, is that going to bring us back to tokenism? And I guess what I would say there is that, you know, we have to be really on guard of, of all of these, these issues at all times and really think about ways of creating true partnerships with people rather than bringing them in on kind of temporary bases that look good in the media or, or have good optics. So I'm going to wrap up, and I think what I will say is that I, I do believe that we should celebrate these symbolic wins when they happen, and then take the energy that's generated from that feeling of getting a win and use that to fuel the much harder, long-term, less glamorous, less public work of making uh, deeper institutional change. I wanted to ask you about how do you, I guess, how do you have that guard up around tokenism? What is the first question or a question you should ask yourself? And, and what is a good counter to tokenism if you feel like you're being tokened? How do you, what are the words to even call? Mm. Well, I, I think if you, if you are in the position where you feel like you might be 
<laughs> in in uh, being consulted or brought into an institution uh, based on you know primarily your identity, the way that you look, your background. Questions to ask might be about um, what are your other hiring plans in terms of diversity, right? Trying to ensure that you're not going to be the first and last uh, person who looks like you in the room, um, insisting that <clears throat> you know you are not the person in the room, the woman in the room, the person of color in the room, the <clears throat> queer person in the room, right? To to uh, put people in that situation is so damaging and dangerous in so many ways uh, to their careers, to their you know emotional well-being, and so on. That I, I think that is something to be on guard for, right? And to the extent that you have the ability to ask those questions or to you know kind of insist once you're in the institution that you are not the only person in the room or that you're not being asked to speak for or to represent you know an entire you know millions of people simply because you you look like them in one or more characteristics would would really be key um I, I think there also has to be you know again to the extent that you you feel you're able to do so to when you're asked to take on that extra work of writing the equity policy for the institution you know saying am i being compensated for this work um you know or or saying to people you know just because i look this way does not mean i'm an expert on all gender diversity issues for example uh, saying you need to hire people who are experts because there are people who do this work, right? There are <laughs> consultants, there are people who trained in it um, and simply having an identity marker. Yes, you bring a certain knowledge with you, but it doesn't mean that you are really equipped to know what the right kinds of policies look like or that you really have that experience in making changes in an institution. So encouraging your institution to actually as I said, put their money where their mouth is, hire the the experts to come in and to, uh, you know, try to make change without overburdening you with all of that extra work. We had all of these groups before. I've been on them too. And often that comes up in the meeting where you say, but once we just have enough representation, if we just get that seat at the table, we just, everything will flow from that. Uh, so is that true? How many seats and will it happen? You know, I hate to be pessimistic, but I don't I don't think that that in and of itself is enough. And I think that that is evidenced by the way that so many people, they do make it to the table and then they leave. Right. They can't stay. They can't sustain um you know, their presence in an institution that has said, hey, yes, come in, join us, and then does everything to remain really hostile to them, it, you know, in terms of those deeper systemic levels. So I think we've, we've seen a lot of great kind of talk about diversity and representation, but without those more true systematic changes, people don't stay, right? It's not, uh, it doesn't result actually in long-term change if people aren't, you know, able to be fully, you know, supported in their careers and to, you know, not have to endure like racist microaggressions at work or sexist behavior or, or harassment in the workplace. Something that's come across in through this week was this repeated phrase being stared at and that being a really uncomfortable thing in public space, uh, in on skateboard parks. And often it strikes me in the open plan office or around the table, it can also feel like you're being stared at. And, uh, and I guess that's, um, I can try to work that into a question, but it strikes me that being in these organizations without less, um, with, with kind of an uneven representation or feeling like the only one is the same as feeling stared at. Yeah, absolutely. And it, it puts people in a position of, you know, when you're the only one who ever raises gender as an issue, you're the only one who ever talks about race, you kind of get pigeonholed and people I think two things happen. One is that people stop paying attention to your actual work, the you know actual things that you're really good at, you know your research, your designs, 
whatever it is that you're actually hired to do. And they see you as, you know, whether it's a stereotype of the angry black woman or, you know, the, the bitchy woman or, um, you know, the, the person who is kind of always just harping on these issues and won't let it go, <clears throat> then you, you do become identified in that way. Uh, Sarah Ahmed, who I mentioned in my talk, she has a nice way of putting this. She says, when you, when you expose a problem, like when you speak up about racism or sexism, you become the problem right? People see you because you have raised it, because you've brought it into the light, because you want people to deal with it. Now you are actually the problem, right? And I know I've experienced that in my my own career by, you know, taking a stand on certain things. And then it's like, oh, you're the one who has caused disharmony in the institution. It's not all of the racism that was there that was the problem. It was you that pointed it out that, that made it into a problem. So, Yes, being the only one in the room and being the one expected to speak on those issues is a very vulnerable uh, position for people to be in. One of the things that I felt myself um, uh, reacting to in your talk was the was an additional weight, which is to be the role model. I mean, somehow just by just being in your career is not enough. You are also a role model. And I think that's an interesting pressure that I wonder if that's universally applied um, or whether, you know, we're just supposed to be role models and everything. Well, I, I think again, in my experience, the, the, the women, the, the people of color, queer folks and so on, they, that I see in, in my field, at least, they hold themselves to an incredibly high standard of both the work that they produce and their behavior, right? In ways that I'll just be blunt, the, the white men in my institution, they don't care how they dress. I shouldn't say all of them. Some of them are very nice dressers, but they don't, but they just don't care about this stuff in the same way that other people really have to on a day-to-day -day basis. You know, I go to work and people go, oh, you're so dressed up. No, I'm just dressed for my job because this is a professional job. And if I dressed like you in a dirty Toronto Blue Jays jersey from 1982, like <clears throat> I would be laughed off the stage in my classroom. <clears throat> so, uh, you know, there there is that that pressure. And I think as as you say, to be that role model, whether that's for me being a role model to students or junior faculty or people, you know, in, in all of your professions to the, the up and comers, in your fields. And, and I think what we see too is that <clears throat> the outside world holds us to a very high standard. So when a woman, for example, kind of messes up, it's like, that's it, right? There's like no second chances for you. Whereas white men can not only have two, three, four chances, but we talk about them failing up, right? Like they did so bad at their one job that they left it and then they got a better job somewhere else, right? But we don't really see that happening to women and people of color who uh, somehow, you know, make a mistake. And then, you know, we just never hear from them again. They just go into a pit somewhere. They don't become the CEO of the next corporation. Unless they start it themselves. And there are many founder CEOs yes. in this audience. And, and, and that is something um, that I hope will create real organizational change because yes. you can do it within your own uh, space, but I would ask around, you know, identifying that lack of of real change um, seems important if you're joining an organization or even you're undertaking a, a project in a in a city to understand when you're being tokenistic and when uh, when you're facilitating or even overriding gentrification, which I think is something that you know has been participated in. Um, it, you know, uh, by by many organizations, knowing or unknowingly, and I would say often just a, tokenistically, as you put it. Mm. Yeah, I mean, I, I think perhaps trying to find out, if possible, <clears throat> ahead of time, ahead of a process, ahead of a hiring. You know what what are the policies of this institution? You know, do you have equity policies? Do you have anti-harassment guidelines? How are these things dealt with? You know, how does your HR department work? Those sorts of questions are really key. And I think many of us kind of don't think to ask them either because we are 
just very excited to be getting a job offer or we um, are kind of naive and we don't really know the um, kind of viper's nest that we might be that we might be uh, getting into. I've, I've, I've recently, I'm sure some of you are familiar with it. I read the book Design Justice by uh, Sasha Costanza Chalk. Um, I can type it in the chat in a second. But the principle of design justice um, thinks about the way in which, you know, whether we're designing an, an app or a technology or a public space or even just a process itself, that equity can't be kind of a, a last minute consideration. It can't be something that we think about at the end of the process. It actually has to be there from the very beginning. It has to be a, a foundational value. So I guess I would say if you're you know, involved in a process, whether you've been asked to, you know, consult or be part of, you know, a new public square or a monument to replace one of those colonizers, right, to to say, okay, you know, is equity a foundational principle here? Or are we going to, you know, worry about that, like five steps, 10 steps down the road when it's already kind of too late to really do anything meaningful about it? So I would definitely recommend um, the 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 book, which is also like, it's available as a free download as well um, online for, for anyone who's involved in these sorts of processes, because it was really uh, just a very clear discussion of the way that, you know, we, we can put equity at the forefront of design processes if we're committed to it. We've heard a bit earlier in the week about making the citizen the expert about, you know, communities being able to lead or co-design in the process. Do you think there are also dangers there in terms of equipping them or giving them the layout or them being compensated or even just the emotional baggage of having to carry the future and past of a place? Um, mm. Absolutely. And and I'll just say the Design Justice book talks about this quite a lot. Some of the dangers of community partnerships that are not always really well thought out. Um, sometimes there's, you know, consultation for the sake of consultation, but there's not really any guarantee that community input will make it into the final product, whatever that might be, whether it's a report or, or a building. Um, there are issues around the compensation of the time and labor of people who are involved because often minority communities are very overtaxed, right? I mean, we, we, yes, it's good that people are like, oh, we have to consult with that community. But if that community is being consulted like eight times over, you know, it, it's a tremendous amount of, of labor, right? It's, um, as you say, time consuming and, and perhaps emotionally consuming as well. Um, there's always those questions of power, you know, who really has power in those processes? Is it ultimately, you know, the architect, the developer, the design firm, the institution, or the community? Usually it's not the community that ultimately has like a veto, for example, you know, in Canada, we famously have this like duty to consult with indigenous groups when there's going to be like a resource development project on, on, um, crown lands. Uh, but the duty to consult doesn't give Indigenous communities actually the power to say no. All it means is that the government has to say, we asked them, they were against it. It doesn't matter. <laughs> we asked, right? <laughs> so there there has to be like some something really robust behind consultation and participation. Um, I, I wanted to ask around the COVID and whether that has changed what you think is um, the impact on the on on city and city making. It's not directly, but we do know that it, you know in terms of representation, certain groups were more represented uh, when it came to the health crisis. Has hit has it shone a light enough on um, inequity uh, in a way that will have some lasting change, or are we going to look at a whole bunch of other tokenistic? Um, reactions to that is the 15 minute city structural change or tokenistic mm -hmm. well i think it has the possibility to be structural change but it has to be accompanied by again a strong like equity foundation to it it can't just be about like amenities and 
convenience and you know jumpstarting the economy it it has to be founded on the sense that you that we're going to implement 15 minute city policies in order to make the city work for those who are most excluded or who have the already have the hardest time in the city right and if you don't have that as the foundation then the 15 minute city is just going to become uh, an amenity, right? Something that those who have the the privilege and money and power to buy into to live in those spaces <clears throat> will will get access to, and people will just others will just be pushed further and further out. Now, I, I think, you know, I'm hopeful that that some of those equity questions are being addressed. You know, in in Paris, for example, I know that they are thinking about that with their 15 minute city plan. It's it's not purely an economic plan or an environmental plan. It's also about care um, and equity, but sometimes those things kind of fall off the table, I think, um, at the last minute, or they get like deprioritized, shall we say. There's a question from Dr. Karen Horward. She clearly got my last call. What changes would you like to see in education? to contribute to change in future generations? That's a big, definitely a big question. Well, hmm. insofar as it relates to questions of representation, I, I mean, I think, you know, there are so many people who, who don't know, who have never learned about histories of colonialism, of slavery, for example, of, you know, deep-seated inequalities, things that happen in their own countries. They're never in the history books. And I, I also don't think they should just be in the history books. It's not a, it's not a historical issue. It's a contemporary issue. So I, I guess I would say that, you know, really thinking about who writes the the stories that we essentially teach in the classroom, uh, what that material looks like, who is invited into that space. I mean, I guess it's a representation issue to think of who the teachers are in, in schools and, and universities. I, I think those things do make a difference for students when they see people who look like them or who are willing to talk about things that are you know, uncomfortable, that are the less pleasant sides of our, our histories that are not the, you know, the winner's version of history. Uh, I, I do think that that will make a difference, but I'm also wary, you know, I would say that we often have thought that education will be the key, but I would also say, you know, if we look at past 60, 70 years of history, education has changed a lot, yet deeper systemic level changes have not really maybe kept pace with what we think they should if it was just about changes in education. So we can't put all our eggs in the education basket either. Your slide about real change reminded me that change, real change is hard. It takes work, it takes time. It, it takes, like you said, a certain playful ad hocness because you might not get it exactly right at first. You need to be able to to continue and go through that process of change over time. Um, and, and that sometimes makes me feel a bit tired too, because probably because disproportionately, you know, we being part of, you know, part W or other groups, um, you feel like we've got to fight all the time to get there. So, mm -hmm. um, so, you know, I guess just to, um, to get your thoughts on how we get that deeper change. And and is part of that mean not not participating in tokenism? Does that help us to actually fight for? <clears throat> it's a good question, and you know, I'll be honest. It's not. This is a little bit outside of my area of expertise to really think about like what doing this looks like. You know, I've I've sort of lived some of these processes and observed them but in many ways you know I'm not always part of those those on the ground changes I mean I think maybe I'll I'll address your point about how tiring it is to to do this work because the problems always seem so big or so much deeper than what 
any one of us can address. And the way that I kind of think about that for myself is to kind of, you know, I like to keep an eye on that big prize of, you know, a more just world, equity, safety, flourishing for all sorts of people. But I also have to think about like, what can I do today that just moves us a millimeter in that direction or that embodies those values in my own relationships, whether it's in my classroom, in my writing, in a talk that I'm giving, like, what is the one little thing that I can do today? Uh, Because I don't think any of us can put on our shoulders that, you know, global uh, systemic change. Um, But, you know, the more that we're aware of some of the pitfalls of representation, I think the more we can kind of watch out for them and think about what, you know, what has failed in the past and what we can do better going forward. On that note, I just want to thank you so much for being here for a really special end to these uh, three days uh, where we've looked at some of these um, ideas of representation, about ideas about respecting citizens as experts, ideas about rewriting um, history and how we go forward. I mean, you've picked up on so many threads throughout this, uh, throughout these uh, three days that we've, um, it's really kind of brought it together and, got, and gotten us ready for what we hope will be deeper changes going forward. I know some of people have been talking about policy documents coming up. We've been talking about how these groups can work together. Um, and I think uh, good things will come. Thank you so much, Leslie. Thank you. Thank you, everyone. Take care. Thanks for listening. Our podcast is produced by Simon Mercer with music by Fortet. If you like what you hear, you can support us on Patreon at patreon.com slash thedeveloperuk. You can sign up to our newsletter on our website, thedeveloper.live, and check out our live events on making more sustainable and equitable places at festivalofplace.co.uk. Thanks a lot. See you next time.